Oh yeah, Duncan Green here with the latest roundup of posts on from poverty to power. You can probably hear the fan heater whirring away in the background. We're on the last cold days of winter, I think. Uh, very pretty to look at. Not so good to be stuck out in as I found this week when I had to cycle uh, on the various bits of the route to Oxford and back. I didn't go the whole way, but it was still pretty damn cold. Okay. Back to, but it was great seeing my colleagues at Oxfam. Total buzz to be in a room with 40 or 50 sort of brilliant policy and advocacy people. That that really was, I've missed that so much during COVID um, and it was really good. Now, back to the posts. So the first links I liked, somebody sent me the most hilarious excuse for not showing up to class. <clears throat> Anonymized, of course. Hello, Professor. I will be a little late to class today. I'm not sure how late, but I will be there. I have been trying to find a way out of my room for over 20 minutes. There is a very big bug between me and the door. And when I move, it moves. And when it flies its wings, uh, when it flies, its wings make this awful whirring noise like some vassal of horror. We are locked in a stalemate and I am at every disadvantage. And I wholeheartedly believe the bug is aware of this. Respectfully, I am in tears. Genius. Absolute genius. I mean, even if it's not true, it's genius. Almost, especially if it's not true. Uh, loved it, you know. Vassal of horror. Where does that come from? I wholeheartedly believe the bug is aware of this. And then respectfully, I am in tears is the new sign off. So thanks, Jess Crombie, for sending that around. Next, much more serious issue from a former student, Lauren Anderson, who got in touch to talk about a big elephant in the aid room. Is class the missing dimension in the aid sector's search for diversity? So Lauren was one of my activism students last year and she uh, sent this over. Recently, the right-wing press has been coming for the volunteers working to support refugees in northern France. And I am writing here as one of them. The right-wing response has been to vilify the efforts of volunteer organisations, claiming they are engaging in assisting and advising people on how to cross the channel. Making humanitarian, making humanitarian work out to be illegal activism is nothing new, especially in the context of refugees, where sadly in one extreme case, 24 humanitarians were arrested and accused of human trafficking when they were actually providing essential items to, to asylum seekers in Greece. What I found particularly striking about the attack by the Mail on Sunday was how they categorised the volunteers as public school educated gap year activists. Of all newspapers, the irony of the male using this identity as a way to undermine humanitarian work, yet not use it against a government where over a third are privately educated and Oxbridge graduates, is astounding, but expected. The male instead co-ops this narrative to perpetuate the classic us v them propaganda, to demonstrate that they're on the side of the average Joe, that more refugees equals less for the public in a time of severe social crisis, and that the out-of-touch wealthy do-gooders don't have to worry about that because they can just pay privately so it won't affect them. However, the article unexpectedly struck a chord with something I am really struggling with working here in Calais. I am the last person on the planet to agree with anything the male has to say, and I actually feel queasy at the thought. But earlier this week, I had a mental health session with an organisation for volunteers specifically because I'm struggling with so much privilege surrounding me here. I've been wrestling with this issue for a long time. During my discussion with the councillor on Wednesday, 
I explained how infuriating it is being surrounded by people who are innately privileged when doing humanitarian work. Firstly, the working environment. Because their parents are funding their ability to work and live here for free, many volunteers are largely unencumbered by real-life responsibilities and so are able to work here without additional stresses. There isn't the crushing pressure that their entire future is riding on their ability to gain experience in the field during this time, because for them they can do this indefinitely. They haven't had to work and save for months or years to be able to work for free, because the sector requires field experience for entry-level positions. They have this additional protection against burnout. But the second and more important frustration is that most of the time these people have no experience of hardship or just no life experience at all. And so whilst completely well-intentioned, they're out of touch with what asylum seekers are experiencing or even practically what they might need, making some of their work just plain stupid. During my first week here, one organisation was handing out tin food without tin openers. Another volunteer had no concept of emotional intelligence, taking the safeguarding policy as meaning we couldn't interact with refugees at all, but should just hand them things and leave, as if they weren't human beings who might need some kind of social or basic human interaction. Living in a shared house with volunteers is also one of the most difficult things I've done in my life. It's like being back at university halls. Let's just dump all our stuff all over the place, keep all the lights on, run the dryer seven times a day and overspend on the food budget because it's okay because the organisation is paying. For them, it's no different to being at home where their parents pay for everything. They've been shielded against the cost of living crisis because they haven't experienced it firsthand. So they have no concept of budgeting or the fact it's probably eating unnecessarily into funds that could be more appropriately used elsewhere. The juxtaposition of this attitude to the house when working daily with people living in tents during the depths of winter is dumbfounding. I want to bang my head against a wall because as someone with lived experience of social deprivation, of growing up in poverty, of being orphaned and navigating the world whilst having to support, protect and advocate for my siblings against the state, of having to pay my own bills back home whilst being here and count everything down to the last penny, it's deeply infuriating that everyone at the table that I've worked so much harder to get to thinks they know what they are talking about. The councillor's response to this was that, yes, they're privileged, and I've spoken to people who do seem to struggle with that. But I tell them that they can't help their privilege, and isn't it good they're directing it where it matters? This is also true and reflects the problematic double-edged sword of this work. The people with the means and time to volunteer are mostly young, wealthy people. We need boots on the ground and these are the only boots able to get here. Moreover, isn't it isn't an essential point of system change utilising your own power and privilege to create pathways for others with less? Perhaps. But at the same time, isn't it maintaining the system of middle-class white saviourism? And this is a sector-wide issue. I received feedback on a job application recently for not acknowledging that I am a white educated woman and that this cost me points due to the drive to address diversity in the sector. This despite my honesty about my own experiences of social deprivation, to which the hiring manager replied, yeah, but we really need to see that you acknowledge you're white. When I asked advice on how to increase my experience, they told me to keep volunteering. When I said that this was not really accessible for me and was creating further hardship in my life, she said, I know, when I was your age, I took out a credit card and moved to Malawi. 
I received similar advice at university when a professor advised us to move to another country when there is a crisis and you should be able to find a job. As if we have all have the means to move abroad without a paycheck indefinitely. Promoting and prioritising diversity is essential. However, my experience so far suggests that no one is addressing the realities of social class in not only accessing the industry, but moving it forward. We need to discuss class and capitalism when talking about diversity, because it's the same systems and processes that repress all marginalised groups. We are living in a critical time of class politics in the UK. The right wing is jumping on this opportunity to divide and conquer by pitting marginalised groups against each other and refugees from the Middle East and Africa are the scapegoat of the day. The humanitarian and development sector do need to acknowledge the culture of private educated gap year activism, otherwise this narrative will crush them. We need to demonstrate that working to support marginalised groups, such as refugees, is synonymous with helping all the socially disadvantaged, because it is. We need to work together to deconstruct these systems and stop reinforcing them. But that means being realistic about whether the humanitarian system in its current form is actually working. Thanks, Lauren Anderson. That's a really great piece. It's something, the question of class and, and privilege bubbles up and down um, uh, in, the, in the aid sector, but it's never really centred. So that was really good. Thank you for that. Next post, I have did one of my, you know, isn't this wonderful things about a new, a new document. Great new guides to systems thinking and practice. I'm always on the lookout for good guides to the practical implications of systems thinking. So I got very excited when I came across Systems Thinking and Practice, a guide to concepts, principles and tools for the FCDO, that's the UK Foreign Office now merged with DFID, and Partners by Jim Woodhill and Juliet Milliken. Its 38 pages are stuffed full of crisp summaries of the main ideas, case studies applying them to the practical business of aid and development, and enough reading to keep you busy for a year. Bravo. It's also interesting to see that the UK's Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office is taking the issue so seriously. In the intro, two Whitehall Mandarins stress the importance of a systems approach to development and diplomacy. 400 FCDO civil servants took the course on which the guide is based. Wow. Do please read it for yourselves, but there's a couple of sections that stood out for me. One is organisational behaviours for putting systems thinking into practice. How do you know if systems thinking is being applied? One, viewing situations holistically. The starting points for systems thinking is to step back and take a helicopter view of the situation you're dealing with. Try to explore, examine and tackle underlying causes of problems, not just symptoms. This means working across different sectors and disciplines and paying attention to the wider context. Two, bringing multiple perspectives to the table. We are limited by our experiences, training, interests and mindsets. A key to systems thinking is opening dialogue between people with different perspectives and insights. How do they see the issues they face? What are their views on how systems are functioning or not? Three, considering alternative future scenarios. Explore how trends, uncertainties and shocks might create radically different futures and what the implications would be for different stakeholders and interests. Engage stakeholders in assessing what would be effective strategies for their interests and for the system as a whole in different future scenarios. Four, strengthening networks, feedback and relationships. Systems evolve and adapt based on networks and feedback between system components. A basic principle of systems practice 
is to increase communication and understanding between actors. Think about how relationships between different parts of a system can be improved, including building trust. Five, designing interventions around system dynamics. Engineering top-down change in human systems is largely impossible, so don't try. Instead, explore how systems can be nudged towards more desirable states. Look at how desirable behaviours can be amplified and less desirable ones can be dampened and the roles that normative and punitive incentives might, pay, might play. Yeah, that raises some interesting sort of challenges to the people who say, well, small change is not worth it anymore. We've got to go for transformational change. This is more nudgy in the way they're thinking about systems. And I think there's some really good conversations to be had there. Six, experimenting, valuing failure and learning. It's pretty self-explanatory. Seven, managing adaptively. If you haven't heard about this, you haven't been paying attention. Responding to the complexity and uncertainty of how complex systems behave requires a highly adaptive approach to management and decision-making. Yep. They also had something which is a bit new to me anyway, on transitions. Throughout human history, we see a constant transitioning from one socio-technical dynamic to another. Think of the transition from horse and cart to the internal combustion engine, the ending of slavery, the current transition from fossil fuels to renewables, or changing gender roles. Understanding how transition processes occur and integrating this with systems thinking offers the potential to intervene in ways that can direct and speed up desirable transitions and dampen less desirable ones. What I like with this is it's dancing with the system. It's, it's saying, you know, look at how the big tides are moving and then see if you can push the good ones and slightly slow down the bad ones rather than thinking it's just us in charge and making great strategies which will change things all on their own. I like that humility and that sort of recognition that in most cases people trying to bring about change are a flea on the, ele on the back of the elephant. Um, as illustrated below, um, transition theory describes how a regime of markets, science, culture, technology, policy and industry becomes locked in with particular groups benefiting from this regime and using their power to maintain it. However, over time, this regime will start to become incoherent amid a changing landscape of environmental and social factors. E.g., it is becoming clear that the fossil fuel energy sector is incoherent with a stable climate. This incoherence is increasingly being acknowledged and triggering change. At the same time, niche innovations are always occurring, which over time can coalesce and scale, resulting in disruption of the existing regime. There's two-way pressure on the regime from a changing context and niche innovations cause, causes the regime to evolve and a new configuration to emerge. I really like that sort of getting under the hood of a paradigm shift uh, piece. And so for activists, there are four key ways to think about intervening to nudge change. Help to make apparent and explicit to a wide range of actors the emerging disconnect between the existing regime and the landscape. Invest in and support a diverse range of innovations. Diverse range of innovations. Don't put all your eggs in one basket. Support processes that identify, coalesce and scale innovations that can help to demonstrate desirable and feasible alternatives to the existing regime. Foster processes explicitly designed to disrupt the existing regime and shift power balances, such as coalitions for change, active civil society groups, critical journalism, or co-op leaders of different groups who can be respected champions for change. And the final section is a really good annotated guide to the vast number 
or systems related toolkits. Everybody seems to have a toolkit, but some of them are really good and some of them not so much. So this is great. Um, it's too late for this. I did the lecture on systems for my LSE class last week, so bother, but it'll definitely be on the reading list next week. And then I stuck with the um, theme of systems change for the last post of the week, which was a book review. So, you know, Christmas is a time, especially actually before Christmas, when things go very quiet and it's time a good time to catch up on reading. And so I read three or four books um, uh, and reviewed them uh, on the blog since then. This one is called The Systems Work of Social Change, How to Harness Connection, Context and Power to Cultivate Deep and Enduring Change. It's a very long title, but anyway, really useful. Um, it's by Cynthia Rayner and Francois Bonici, uh, who are both based in South Africa. And it's got a lot of really good case studies from around the world. And again, gets very practical. So I think it goes very well with the, with, uh, the, the Woodhill and Millican paper that I just reviewed. Um, and the audience is our industry of social change, which they estimate at 10 million NGOs, contributing an average 4.5% of global GDP and employing 7.4% of the world's workforce. I must check out the references for that, but blimey. One in 12 people in the world works for an NGO? One in 13? Maybe. Uh, that would be interesting. I guess it depends on how you define an NGO. Given their origins, it matters that they have written this as a critique of the industrial approach to social change, which they claim has taken over that industry in recent years. Plans, indicators, service providers, linearity and all the rest. They call for a rethink to fit a world of messy, constant, shifting, complex systems and wicked problems. And then a couple of quotes. Their starting point. Complexity presents us with the realisation that our world is essentially unknowable. The implications of this are profound. Confronted with unknowability, we can choose different approaches. We can build models that incorporate complexity to the finest degree possible, narrowing our risk of uncertainty to rare instances and outliers. Many complexity theorists are following this path, working to decomplexify complexity. Alternatively, we can acknowledge that complexity means we are fallible. Complexity is an acknowledgement, a sort of surrender. Even when informed by the most intentional and diverse of groups with the most robust data, our understanding of reality is inherently reduced, even tainted by our perception. That's beautiful writing. And I have to say, I'm probably in the surrender camp. You surrender yourself to complexity and then say, so what do we do? But other people definitely get into the uh, uh, decomplexify uh, uh, camp and try and really you know, use social network theory or uh, analysis or all sorts of things to try and take the complexity out of complexity. I think both of those approaches are interesting and worth thinking about. And their book argues for both and, right? But concentrates on how to navigate intentionally through the fog. So they're kind of more with me, I think. Some examples, start with the process in mind, not the outcome fostering connections and rebuilding, reconfiguring power. Connections, relationships, we're back to that again, same as uh, the Woodhill and uh, Millican paper. Lots of practical advice on the more intangible end of social change. Shifting norms, creating safe spaces where collective identity and action can brew, slowing down, letting go of control if you're in a position of power, including not intervening when people make mistakes so they can learn from them. The mutually reinforcing effort to disrupt politics and norms. Creating a wedge in one allows change makers to start disrupting the other and vice versa. And they have nice examples on that from India and Colombia. For a progressive aid wonk, 
I think nine still qualifies that. There's a lot of standard fare, localization, decentralization, participation, collaboration, building trust with them, relationships, etc. But the examples and the links to systems thinking often cast new light on familiar topics. The pedagogy is excellent, lots of clear definitions. Each chapter ends with a one-page summary with the focus on top tips, perfect for students. The most useful bit of the book is probably the last, a good, strong, so what section, and they're often the weakest in books, on reimagining the future, with excellent chapters on systems-compatible measurement for learning, funding for partnership, and a broader concluding principles and practices in action. When a book is this rich, it's actually very hard to review. An overview can make it sound very bland, and there are too many good bits to summarise in a blog. Much better to take, a, to take a look for yourself. You can buy it, or if you have the right institutional affiliation, you might be able to read it online through open access. So, as always, props to the authors for sorting out some limited degree of open access. Okay, it's a lovely Friday uh, as I speak. I've got loads to do, so I'm going to say goodbye and have a great weekend. Talk to you next week. Bye.